I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, amniotic membrane transplantation in burns. Spread the membrane on the eye and under the microscope, uh, you can touch the surface of the membrane with a Wexel sponge or any other swab. And the uh, stomal side looks more gelatinous, jelly-like or vitreous-like in consistency. And when you lift up your swab, a little strand of jelly or vitreous comes along with it and it sort of sticks to it and it gets lifted up. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Tandon declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Chemical and thermal burns are among the most difficult ocular conditions to treat. And the clinical course may be inexorable leading to cicatrization of the ocular surface. Acute management is important, and amniotic membrane transplantation has been proposed as adjunctive therapy. My guest today, Radhika Tandon, has just published a large study examining the use of amniotic membrane transplants in ocular burns. Before we talked about her study, Dr. Tandon gave me a description of her medical center, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences. Uh, it's known as AIMS, uh, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, AIIMS, and the ophthalmology department is housed in the, um, in the hospital in what is known as the Rajendra Prasad Center for Ophthalmic Sciences. Uh, it's a very large department with 40 faculty members, and uh, we have um, 60 residents in training. Plus, we have uh, another 30 residents who are uh, senior residents, so they've completed their MD in ophthalmology and they're uh, working um, sort of as, um, I don't know, maybe your equivalent would be a chief resident, I'm not sure, um, but it would be like the English system would be of a senior registrar. Uh, so we have... Uh, um, so you have 90 about, residents? Yes, we have 90 residents. Uh, yes, it's a very big, uh, big department, and then uh, we have six specialty units. You know, so um, they all take care of the different aspects of ophthalmology. Uh, I am in the cornea and refractive surgery unit, and we work as a team. So um, it's not an individual work at all. I, uh, I just happened to have been the principal investigator, but uh, it's a, it's a whole team, and the unit is headed by uh, Professor Rasik Bajpayee. And then uh, the other faculty in the cornea and refractive unit are uh, Professor uh, Titial, that's his name's in the paper as well, and uh, Dr. Namrata Sharma. And then we have uh, taken the help of the biostats department, uh, of which uh, Ravindra Pandey uh, helped us a lot. But it's, we have a, a full-fledged biostats department in the hospital. It's a very huge multi-speciality hospital. If you have 90 residents, how yes. large is the um, faculty? 40, 40 faculty. That includes uh, 26 clinical faculty, 
Uh, and then we have um, uh, an ocular biochemistry, ocular pharmacology, community ophthalmology. So they are, they, they are not ophthalmologists. They would be basic scientists with their degrees, a PhD in, in their field. And uh, then radio diagnosis and and so on. So it's 40 faculty members. In, this is in ophthalmology. What is the patient volume that, that, you, that you normally see? I, mean, I can't picture... A, a a a program that's got 90 residents i mean we have we have 21 residents yes. and we're considered a fairly large program yes uh, we have a very high patient volume uh, we cater to patients from all over india um, most of our patients do come from the north of india because india is a very big country and traveling from one end to the other is takes you know by train will take 2 days or 3 days a lot of people come from the villages, so they have to travel by bus. So even in the north of India, there are people who have to travel three days just to reach the hospital. And uh, so there are good institutions coming up in the south of India as well. Uh, so uh, most of our patients do come from the north of India, and sometimes we get referrals from the south if it's uh, you know something that requires some special care because it is a tertiary care referral unit. It's a government, it's entirely government funded, um, which means uh, all our salaries are paid by the government and the entire hospital is funded by the government. Uh, the patients have to pay very little. Um, they uh, have to pay uh, 10 rupees, which is a quarter of a dollar for getting an outpatient's card made. Uh, sometimes the patients cannot afford even that and then the charges have to be exempted. Uh, if the patients need to get admitted, then again, uh, there is a diet charge, which is a um, little less than a dollar a day. And then again, there are patients who cannot afford that. So um, you uh, have to then exempt it. And then the government bears the cost for that. Um, as far as all the um, medicines are concerned, that the patients do have to um, buy when they leave the hospital. So uh, sometimes we have to, you know, uh, with the help of research projects, we are able to, um, you know, help the patients that way. Uh, plus, for example, the consumables that would be required during surgery, like the oxide or the sutures. Now, that is difficult for the government to uh, provide for everybody. Uh, so uh, there again, we take it from the research grants or sometimes the patient pays. So, you know, it cannot, uh, you cannot have uh, a system where the government pays for everything. So it is a sort of um, a system where as for the patients who can afford it, they would buy the consumables, uh, which would mean things like sutures, oxide, and uh, so on. Uh, the amniotic membrane, of course, um, there's no there's no charge at all because we have prepared it in the hospital in the eye bank uh, and we got the membranes from our, our department of obstetrics so uh, that's sort of the kind of um, way the system works uh, the patient load is tremendous um, there are almost about 1000 to 1500 patients who come into the outpatients it's a walk-in system uh, because as you understand uh, appointments are not possible a lot of them don't even have access to a phone they will, there's no way that they can make appointments and come so it's a walk-in system and then uh, we run the outpatients in the morning it's a huge volume similarly our uh, casualty that is the uh, emergency services they run round the clock 
uh, and we have um, residents posted there uh, round the clock. We put our senior most uh, junior residents along with a senior resident on. So all the time we have two residents in the casualty, which would mean one person would be towards the end of his training. That is, it's a three-year training residency training program, which is structured. And the last six months they are on rotation um, doing their casualty posting. Uh, in addition, they are posted in fluorescent and geography, laser, and so on. And uh, along, to super, uh, along with them, there would be a person who has finished his MD and is, as I said, what we call a senior resident. Um, and uh, so they're there in the casualty round the clock. And uh, a lot of the burn patients come in uh, directly to the uh, emergency or casualty, as we call it. Um, and uh, then uh, we have to have a lot of inpatients. Uh, uh, we have 300 beds. Uh, the reason we have to have the inpatients is again because of logistics, because um, a lot of the, lot of ophthalmology is now shifting to daycare and outpatient care. But uh, because the patients are poor, they come from very far. They often come with relatives, and then it's expensive to live in Delhi to find a place to stay. So having them as inpatients uh, is much cheaper for them and more convenient for follow-up. Like, for example, we um, operate and if you want to see the patient after three days and then after four days, so it makes more sense to keep them in the hospital for a week and then let them go home and come back. You know, So these things have sometimes to be uh, worked out for social reasons. So we have 300 um, beds. And the residents have enough uh, training material. In fact, there's too much. What are the main issues in managing burns? The main issues in managing burns would be uh, if you're seeing the patient in the acute phase or in the chronic phase in the sense, you know, whether the burn happened recently or whether it's, um, uh, you know, ha happened some time ago and now you're facing the sequelae. Now, the main problem uh, is, uh, as far as the management goes, is um, firstly in determining the prognosis. Uh, it would depend upon the severity and the grade of burn, the extent of damage, uh, and then the main problem is the um, presence of uh, the limbal ischemia, which then leads to stem cell deficiency and sequelae. Uh, in the acute phase, there are problems of uh, an epithelial defect, which uh, may take time to heal. There is inflammation. And the eye is prone to um, scarring in various forms. So we can have... Um, scarring of the cornea, and you have scarring of the conjunctiva, cicatrization, symblephron formation. And the, the worst thing is, of course, the limbal stem cell deficiency, which is uh, then going to lead to uh, a chronic um, problem. You and the paper make reference to uh, grade 2, grade 3, and grade 4 burns. Can I have you go over just briefly what the rating system is for categorizing burns as uh, uh, mild, moderate, and severe? Okay. Um, basically, uh, when one grades burns, uh, one is uh, looking at certain aspects. The most important prognostic indicator is the extent of limbal ischemia. Uh, the other thing that one takes into consideration is the presence of any uh, stromal haze. This is the, the, the system which was traditionally used in uh, Roper Hall system of classification. In addition, uh, recently, uh, Professor Dua in England has uh, proposed that one should also take into account the um, extent of conjunctival involvement. So um, that is another aspect which has been added. 
So now going into our grades, the traditional Roper Hall classification divided it into four grades, one, two, three, and four. Grade one and two were estimated to have good prognosis based on observation of patients. And uh, the uh, grade one burns have no limbal ischemia. They may have some corneal epithelial damage. Uh, now, the trouble is that sometimes you have uh, a patient who has limbal ischemia. What, what I found is, and what people also have um, recommended, is that if there is a doubt about which grade it goes because there's an overlap, then you concentrate on the amount of limbal ischemia. Grade 1 would be no limbal ischemia, and that is a system that we follow, and that has good prognosis. Grade 2 is when there is limbal ischemia, which is less than a third, and uh, there, is, there may be corneal haze, but the iris details are visible. That's grade 2. This also has a good prognosis. Now, uh, there is likely to be corneal epithelial damage as well. Grade 3 is uh, a guarded prognosis. Now, here they have said total epithelial loss, stromal haze, and iris details obscured. And you have a limbal ischemia, which is one-third to a half. Sometimes you find that the patient in grade 3, based on limbal ischemia, does not have a total epithelial loss. Similarly, there may not be a stromal haze right at the outset. So this is when uh, one may feel that based on the corneal criteria, it would come in grade 2. However, um, if the limbal ischemia is more than a third, it is better to grade it as grade 3. But you know, it's it has to be more systematically proved. It's very difficult to prove it systematically, but but it is, I think, a better uh, a better way to um, to go is to base it on the limbal ischemia. And then grade four is poor prognosis, which means um, um, as far as the grading goes, the limbal ischemia is more than a half, that is more than 180 degrees or more than six clock hours. And uh, here again, they have said cornea is opaque, iris and pupil is obscured. However, not all grade 4 burns have such a severe uh, appearance of the cornea. So they may have limbal ischemia affecting, say, 7 or 8 clock hours, and the cornea may not be totally opaque. So that is why um, the Roper Hall classification, one should concentrate more on the limbal ischemia, and the corneal features can be taken as a, a guideline. Now, coming to grade 4, if you have limbal ischemia more than 180 degrees or more than 6 clock hours, uh, they all come in grade 4. However, the way the patients behave uh, indicates that there should be a further breakup, which is what uh, Professor Dua has done. And um, so he's further added uh, grade um, 5 and 6. And grade 4, which was originally uniformly poor, has now being put as grade 4 good to guarded, which is more than 6 to 9 clock hours. It's very confusing, but one should have a chart. You know, if one is studying, uh, seeing a lot of patients of burns, then one should have a chart put up in casualty because nobody can remember these figures. If it is grade 5, it is guarded to poor, which is more than 9 to less than 12 clock hours. And grade Six is very poor, and this is a total limbal involvement that is full all 12 clock hours. In addition, there is conjunctival involvement, which again is 
grade one zero percent, grade two less than thirty percent, and so on. Um, I could give you the reference for this uh, classification. It's in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, two thousand and one, volume eighty five. Uh, page one three seven nine to one three eight three. In this paper, you compare conventional therapy with amniotic membrane transplant to conventional therapy without the amniotic membrane. What is yes. conventional therapy, and what are the the objectives of the of the different components of conventional therapy? Yes. Uh, the uh, conventional therapy includes uh, first aid, which would be in which was a, uh, so as you have said, uh, both groups uh, received this conventional therapy, which included first aid. So the moment the patient comes, you uh, you have to irrigate the conjunctival sac thoroughly to get rid of uh, any residual um, chemical which is still present, uh, which means uh, irrigating the fornices and even double immersion of the eyelid. This is best done with non-toxic solutions, so copious irrigation with uh, say sol- uh, uh, saline, normal saline, or uh, Ringer's lactate or Hartman solution. Uh, which you use with a standard intravenous drip and um, irrigate. It, it would depend upon uh, what is the nature of the chemical which has entered the eye. A lot of patients in India uh, get um, uh, chuna, which is uh, lime, calcium hydroxide, which is an edible um, lime which they put in along with betel nut in pan and it's chewed. And it is... Um, Usually the children or somebody in the house who's playing with the packet in which the tuna is marketed, it's in a sort of a pouch which uh, has a squidgy feel like Play-Doh. So the patients or the children or somebody has been squeezing it just playfully and it suddenly bursts and it squirts into the eye. Uh, what happens is you have a lumpy, cheesy material which gets un- uh, under the upper fornix, usually nasal. And if people aren't aware of this, they may miss that little lump of tuna which is lying in the fornix. So they may irrigate everything else and that lump stays there and it keeps leaching out the alkali over several days. So in children, you actually have to take them to the operating theater under general anesthesia and irrigate uh, the fornices thoroughly and mechanically remove these particles. So uh, it's important to know if it was a solid, uh, um, a solid um, lump of alkali which went in. Um, so apart from uh, first aid, then uh, the full assessment of the patient on the slit lamp, etc. And then uh, we start with the conventional therapy. That consists of um, topical steroids. Um, one could choose any steroid, uh, but uh, we usually use... Um, prednisolone acetate. Uh, The purpose of this steroid is to reduce the inflammation because the eye is uh, inflamed. And uh, then an antibiotic, um, again, because there's such a lot of raw surface on the eye uh, that it may be prone to secondary infection. Uh, So uh, an antibiotic just to cover prophylactically uh, to prevent any infection. Then, uh, now, sodium ascorbate drops. 10%, these are not commercially available, so they have to be made up in a pharmacy. And sodium citrate, 10% drops. Uh, Sodium ascorbate is because um, it's equivalent to vitamin C. It is given topically as well as systemically for the conversion of lysine and proline to hydroxylysine and hydroxyproline for the synthesis of collagen. And uh, sodium citrate, 10%, also helps in uh, reducing the uh, melting. 
and preservative-free lubricants, a home atropine as a cycloplegic, and uh, oral vitamin C, as I mentioned. Uh, patients also tend to have a rise in intraocular pressure because alkali causes the collagen to swell and shrink, and that produces a rise in intraocular pressure. So one could give topical beta blockers or uh, systemic acetazolamide. Uh, the question of a therapeutic contact lens. Um, a therapeutic contact lens could be put, uh, but because of the poor hygiene, poor socioeconomic status, dirty fingers, and uh, the, the risk that we envisage of secondary infection if the patients have a contact lens in the eye, that is the reason why we have not uh, put a contact lens routinely. We have only um, uh, applied the conventional therapy and the amniotic membrane. None of the patients in this study had a bandage contact lens put in? No, they didn't, which is uh, why we, dis we discussed that, um, you know, maybe if the um, uh, conventional group had been, put, had been uh, treated with a bandage contact lens, that itself may have produced some pain relief. Um, so that, that is a, a question which um, could be um, looked at separately. Why have amniotic membrane transplants been proposed for the treatment of burns? So the rationale for trying amniotic membrane, uh, amniotic membrane is a biological membrane uh, which um, is uh, obtained from um, healthy cesarean sections. It's non-immunogenic and uh, it has um, two important properties. There is the epithelial basement membrane portion and then there is a stromal portion which have their own uses. The epithelial basement membrane component acts as a sort of smooth substrate to allow epithelium to grow and be uh, over it. And the stromal side contains growth factors and um, various other factors which uh, reduce chemotaxis, reduce inflammation, inhibit scarring, and inhibit uh, vascularization. Now, the amniotic membrane, the way it has been applied in uh, or has been suggested for use in treatment of chemical burns is more like a biological contact lens. So uh, it is applied with a stromal side touching the eye and then all the goodies present in the stroma uh, would, uh, goodies in the sense all the proteins and the growth factors would help in promote healing and reducing the scarring and um, cicatrization. And the surface uh, epithelial uh, epithelium is not really going to grow over it because the membrane melts within about uh, 10 to 14 days. Sometimes it lasts a little longer, up to 18 to 20 days. Can I have you describe the design of this study? The study was designed as a prospective, randomized, controlled clinical trial. The patients were selected based on their mode of presentation. So we take, took patients with acute burns who presented within three weeks of injury. Uh, we would have liked to take them presenting earlier, but um, as I explained, looking at the way that our patients come from far distances and often they get treatment in the local hospitals and then are sent to us, so uh, we thought we wouldn't be able to get enough numbers if we said presented within one week of injury. So we selected patients within three weeks of injury, and we also felt that the, the, the first three weeks are the early as well as the intermediate phase, and we felt that all the potential benefits of amniotic membrane should still be um, uh, valid within the first three weeks. The patients 
were sort of screened as they came to the casualty or the cornea clinic and so on. And then they were randomized um, after taking informed consent. The patients were aware that by randomization there would be a chance that they would come in any group. So they had to agree to that. And then they were um, randomized either to conventional therapy or the uh, amniotic membrane. Uh, we selected patients with grade 2 to 4 ocular burns, so we didn't randomize them separately, you know, depending on whether they were moderate burns, that is 2 or 3 or 4. And uh, the other thing was that uh, the bilateral cases. Uh, the patients who had bilateral burns, uh, we took the worse eye and uh, randomized them and then put the other eye in the other group. Did the two groups differ when you looked at them after the study in terms of the severity or the etiology uh, of the of the burns? Um, uh, no, they were similar in terms of the age, um, the sex, the nature of injury, whether it was acid, alkali, or thermal. We included thermal as well, which was usually firecracker, which is a combination of chemical and thermal. And they were uh, similar in terms of severity in the same sense. They had the same mix of um, grade uh, 2, 3, and 4. However, there was a difference in the visual acuity and the size of the epithelial defect. Um, the amniotic membrane group had a worse visual acuity as well as a larger epithelial defect. Can I have you walk me through an amniotic membrane transplantation surgery? Yes. Um, so we take informed consent. Uh, you have to um, obtain amniotic membrane from a safe and reliable source. So that would be from... Uh, a cesarean section donor where the donor has been screened for all infections and the amniotic membrane has been uh, prepared and preserved and then a repeat sample of the donor has been checked uh, for the window period. So we take it as three months. Um, in England, they take six months as a window period before they release um, for clinical use. Um, so you, have, you need to ha arrange for your amniotic membrane and then uh, you need to arrange for a, a symblephron ring or a sterile shell which will assist you during the surgery. And uh, you need sutures, A0 vicral sutures, oxide and the usual uh, operating microscope and other equipment. Children have to be done under general anesthesia. Um, adults can be done under peribulbar anesthesia. Now, the surgery takes about 40 to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour. So uh, w once you have cleaned and draped the patient, uh, initially uh, you can put in a speculum. So you put in a, a wire speculum and take the amniotic membrane from the source. Uh, it has been thawed and then uh, irrigated an antibiotic solution. And then you place it on the eye. Uh, it is um, placed on the paper disc with the stromal side touching the paper. You peel it off the paper, bring it to your operative field. Sometimes when you peel it off, it still scrunches up and you're again not sure which is the stromal side and which is the epithelial side. So you spread the membrane on the eye and under the microscope, uh, you can touch the surface of the membrane with a Wexel sponge or any other swab stick. And the uh, stromal side looks more gelatinous, jelly-like or vitreous-like in consistency and when you lift up your swab, a little strand of jelly or vitreous comes along with it and it sort of sticks to it and it gets lifted up. So that is the stromal side. So then you flip it over to the other side and you touch the opposite surface and it should be completely smooth. It shouldn't even come up at all with your um, 
sponge. So once you have identified the proper side, you, you, you spread it on the eye and you arrange it in such a way to make sure that you're going to be able to cover the whole surface of the eye. And then uh, you apply uh, anchoring sutures around the limbus, taking a bite of the epistera. Now in acute burns, there's a lot of edema, sometimes a lot of chemosis, and it's quite... Um, difficult. Uh, you have to be careful that you don't perforate the globe um, and uh, there is often bleeding. In fact, there usually is bleeding uh, as soon as you puncture the conjunctiva. So you don't have to bother to wash out that blood. Uh, you just carry on and um, so you put anchoring sutures around the limbus, taking a bite of the epistera, about eight sutures. Then uh, you again spread the membrane out to make sure you have enough to cover the furnaces and then you can put in a sterile shell or uh, a conformer, something to spread the membrane all over into the furnaces. After that, you have to now remove your speculum and then you can either use lid sutures or you can with the forceps hold the lid and sort of avert the lid so that you are now having access to the furnaces. So the sterile conformer or sterile shell or the symblephron ring, whatever you've put in, into the eye is making sure that the membrane is nicely stretched along the whole surface of the eye so that you don't end up with it ripping off at the end. Uh, and then you put multiple sutures uh, anchoring it to the palpebral conjunctiva, the fornix, and uh, similarly upper lid and the lower lid. After that, one takes out the symblephron ring or uh, sometimes it is easy at this stage to anchor. If you're sure you've spread it properly, you put a few sutures along the lid margins also. So you're actually suturing the lid right up to the lid margins to, uh, and uh, you have multiple small sutures there. Then you remove your um, scheduled shell or expander and then you can put a phonic forming suture if you feel that the anchoring has not been good. So you put a suture go going uh, through the phonix and then coming out in the lid on a rubber peg so that the membrane is very anchored in the furnaces and it covers the whole eye. And you can give a subconjunctival injection of antibiotic and steroid at the end of surgery. Uh, the patients under general anesthesia, we um, uh, put ointment and then uh, we, we uh, left the eye open or we put an iPad for about an hour or so and then we leave the eye open after that and get them to start putting their eye drops in. Uh, the patients who had peribulbar anesthesia, if their lid function is not uh, normal, if they still not have, you know, if the eye, the orbicularis is still paralyzed and we let them have the eye patch for a little longer, six to eight hours, and then they start to remove it and start putting the antibiotics. Yes, the last thing is because we wanted to keep uniformity in the two groups in this paper, uh, we had not put a bandage contact lens. However, now um, we're, we're still continuing the trial and um, we are now putting the bandage contact lens after the amniotic membrane because um, I feel it helps the membrane to be more stable and helps it to last longer. So I recommend, see this is, uh, in the paper we thought that the two groups should be uniform and we had taken the decision not to use the uh, contact lens because of our concern of, of infection. Um, however, now our standard of care is to put a bandage contact lens and we explain to the patient and uh, we have not had any case of infection. So once more, if there's hemorrhage underneath the amniotic membrane, this is something that does not concern you? No, because, see, it's going to be, there is going to be hemorrhage. You're going to put multiple sutures on a very inflamed eye, and um, it doesn't concern me, no. There's, there's never so much hemorrhage that is going to lead to a huge clot. How long does this surgery take, typically? 
Yes, it takes a, a good amount of time, 45 minutes to an hour. It takes time because, uh, you know, it's very fiddly. There is a lot of edema and um, you have to spread it and then you have to put the sutures. So it takes about 45 minutes to an hour. What were the main outcome measures for your study? Uh, for our study, the main outcome measures were uh, the um, the ocular discomfort scores or the relief of the ocular discomfort, then uh, the healing of the epithelial defect. These were our two main uh, measures. We also looked at the development of symblephron, corneal vascularization, and tear function tests. However, the main concern was uh, uh, the um, ocular discomfort or the relief of ocular discomfort and the epithelial defect. And again, the reason was that once the patients recover or settle down or stabilize, they don't come for follow-up uh, over long periods of time. So based on our follow-up, uh, our, our uh, lost to follow-up data, we really cannot uh, comment on uh, things like uh, ultimate outcome in terms of extent of corneal vascularization, etc., on a long term. So now we are being more rigid about uh, getting patients to come for follow-up. So this preliminary trial, you know, really if you see the data is reliable only uh, as far as three to four months. Not say, one would not say reliable. I would say the data is very reliable. But what I mean to say, it's robust for the first three to four months. And these are the main features that you can um, assess, the discomfort and the epithelial defect. One of the things that, that you mentioned in the paper, too, was that pain was um, was a bigger issue for the patients with grade 2 and grade 3 burns uh, than, yes. for the, than for the grade 4 burns where the damage is so extensive that the, that the nerve fibers have been damaged, too. How long does the amniotic membrane typically last uh, uh, in, the, in these patients in this context? Uh, the amniotic membrane lasts for about um, you know ten to fourteen days to eighteen days. Uh, you know the average was about fourteen days. The range was about uh, from uh, ten to eighteen days. There were there were some patients for whom it uh, melted more quickly, so we applied uh, it again. It was reapplied. Once we started using the bandage contact lens, the membrane stays stable and lasts longer. So it's you know for almost fourteen to twenty days uh, under the bandage contact lens. Now, uh, the pain relief was, you know, uh, very dramatic, particularly in the children, like the children who were with, you know, their eyes slightly closed and, you know, watering and uncomfortable and uncooperative. The, the day after surgery, they were, um, you know, opening the eye comfortably and much more comfortable. So it made a lot of difference. Looking at the ocular discomfort, we scored it and we compared it to how it was uh, before and after surgery. So uh, both groups did show some reduction in pain, uh, but the reduction was significantly greater in the amniotic membrane uh, group uh, in patients who had moderate-grade burns. Uh, now, coming to the healing of the epithelial defect, uh, the mean size of the epithelial defect was actually larger at presentation in the amniotic membrane group. Um, so we had to uh, take the rate of healing as our uh, as our benchmark for uh, analysis. And uh, so uh, looking at the reduction of the uh, size of the epithelial defect compared to baseline, uh, it was significantly higher in the amniotic membrane group in the moderate grade burns, that is the grade two and three. Uh, that was statistically significant. 
Now, coming to the severe burns, in severe grade burns, there was a, 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 a quicker reduction in the epithelial defect compared to the baseline. Uh, however, the difference was not statistically significant. And uh, in both groups, there were patients in, in the severe burns where the defect did not heal completely, even up to three months of follow-up. Then uh, looking at the other factors such as the visual acuity, the amount of corneal vascularization and semblephron, there was again no statistically significant difference. Uh, you, I would like to mention that our patients were followed up very closely and even in the conventional group, if there was a evidence of semblephron forming, it was very meticulously released. What do you do now in your own practice outside of study patients and similarly what what do you what do you recommend uh, for ophthalmologists dealing with uh, burn patients now um, what I recommend for ophthalmologists um, who are dealing with burns patients is uh, if you're facing a patient with a moderate burn two or three you start them on conventional therapy uh, and uh, keep them on close follow-up if you find that after a week uh, there is a very slow healing of the epithelial defect. So, you know, like for example, if there was a large epithelial defect which is healed partially and then it is slow, I would recommend that, that you try uh, amniotic membrane. Uh, the other thing is uh, if you have uh, a grade 4 burn which has got full limbal ischemia involving all uh, 360 degrees of the limbus and total conjunctival involvement and severe lid involvement where there is a lot of leg ophthalmos, there a simple amniotic membrane transplantation would definitely not work. Uh, so uh, one has to assess uh, the patient depending upon the extent of melting and one would have to consider a therapeutic um, graft along with uh, extensive lid reconstruction if one was to save the eye in these patients. Coming back uh, to the uh, amniotic membrane in the uh, grade, say, 3 to 5 burns, or the, uh, which is following Dua's classification, uh, there I would say that it has to be a, an individual judgment. So if you feel that the epithelial defect is very large, it is slow to heal, or there is severe inflammation which is not settling down, or the symblephron is forming very quickly, then after watching the patient for two to three days, one could um, uh, use amniotic membrane. Dr. Tandon, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Radhika Tandon is Professor of Ophthalmology at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India. Her paper, Evaluation of Amniotic Membrane Transplantation as Adjunct to Medical Therapy as Compared with Medical Therapy Alone in Acute Ocular Burns, appears in the November 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Tandon or any of our previous guests. 
or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website at seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.